Oh, yes, kids, fourth and fifth graders, if you don't mind, leave. <laughs> Go with Jeremy. Are you the teacher? Jeremy's the teacher. Sixth graders can go too. Unless your name is Nate. <laughs> Nate, Nate, you can go, but you can stay. Seventh stay. Ha ha. You know, the truth is, any age, if you want to keep them in here, like Devin, keep them in here. That's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with being in here in big church or whatever you would call it. Um, I think we're going to be doing that, you know, in a few weeks, we're going to start having the kids in here with us, partly so that they can learn to be with us, partly so we can learn to be with them, um, and partly to give our leaders a break. Uh, we call our servants worship leaders because that's, if you're here on a Sunday and you're doing anything, whether you're back in the sound or with the kids, you're a worship leader, but sometimes we need a break. And so summer is that time where we're going to give them a break. Turn to John, if you would, please. We are continuing in John. <clears throat> and if you haven't noticed, I don't sing like that very often. So um, if my voice runs out, I need a volunteer to come finish this. Um, somebody laughed. That means they volunteered. Sarah. <laughs> so we are in John. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and Tony will bring you one. If you need a Bible, don't be ashamed. No big deal. Um, if you want to use your phone or whatever, that's great too. There's Bible apps on there. We're using the ESV. If you're in one of these Bibles, we're on page 613. Page 613. I have some. Thank you. Isn't she great? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was reading uh, some time ago, an author, and, and he, he asked the question, he said, how long can a church last after the Holy Spirit leaves the church? And my first thought was, not long, not long at all. And the author disagreed with me. He said, actually, the church can last a long time without the Holy Spirit, as long as they have money. Um, it can go on as long as the money keeps coming. And that kind of stuck out to me, and I, I think that's somewhat true, that as the money keeps coming, we can, we can become more obsessed with continuing what we have rather than carrying on the mission of God, rather than actually meeting with God on, on a Sunday. And as a, a very young church plant, you know, there's a tension that we have to manage a little bit as we're, we're starting out. You know, we, we're meeting in this place, which is awesome. Um, we're getting this unit next door. If you haven't peeked in, you can peek in there, uh, hold your kids' hands because it's dangerous. But in two weeks, I think we'll be in that room. So our kids will be in there. We've just been borrowing that one. But, so we need a place to meet. You know, we need these things. We need a website and, and we need some of these things. But the danger is that we get focused on these things. Uh, you know, they, all the church planner books that you read, they all say, teach about giving early and often because you need the money to keep going. And I struggle with that a little bit because I think God will provide for the ministries that he wants to keep going. And if God doesn't provide for a ministry, maybe it's time for that ministry to be done. Uh, I mean, finished. Um, but yet we do need to teach on giving because as disciples, we need to give. Uh, that's one of our tests of discipleship of where we are. We need to give. But the danger, again, can become a focus on, on money, um, on keeping the programs going. When I was 16, I went with Teen Missions some here also went to, they went to Panama. They didn't have a great time. Um, I went to Fiji. I had a great time. 
yeah, Fiji. But one of the things we would do is we would go to church services in the, the local villages. And I remember we walked a ways to a, a church. Um, I was 16 and we walked in the morning. We got there promptly at nine o'clock. There was about 24 on our team. And we get to this church building that's just uh, a hut with no walls, basically. And we got there and we were waiting and waiting. And uh, I finally asked one of the locals there. I said, so when does church start? <laughs> they said, well, when everybody gets here. I said, okay, and when's that? And when the sun is about there. So, you know, no rush. Uh, people got there and, and we had the church service and our team of 24 pretty much doubled the congregation. Um, and there was something unique about that church service that I remember. I remember the authentic worship. There, they didn't have a building. <laughs> they didn't have a bunch of programs. They had Jesus and they had each other. And their worship was, was real. And I was trying to think of how to describe it. And maybe you've seen it. If you're ever up here and you see people worshiping, you can see it. Um, or you're in a time you can see it. You know the look somebody has when they are talking about their beloved. Somebody that, you know, their mate. Someone they, they love. The look they get on their face of, of love. That's the look sometimes people get talking about God. And I think it's, it's the feeling, at least, that should start in our heart of God is our beloved, like, like a lover. Like a lover, he's our beloved. And when you see that in people, it's genuine and it's real and you want it. And I saw that in this little church body, this little congregation. Um, and at the end, we took communion. And they do it differently there. They pass a clump of bread around and you tear off a piece and eat it and you pass it down the line. And then they pass down a big glass of wine down the line and you just take it and you take a sip and pass it on. I was the last of about 50 people. <laughs> yeah, I sat in the back and so it comes along and I'm like 50 people have drank out of this, but it's wine so it's disinfected, right? So, um, but what I, what I learned through, through that time there was worship isn't about me. You know, of course, part of me is thinking about me. It's hot and we're waiting for these people and, and I don't want to drink out of this, but it wasn't about me. It was about Jesus. It was about what he had done. And it got me thinking too, how is our worship? And we're going to look today here at John and we're going to see what Jesus thinks about worship. Is our worship about us? Do we abuse it? Or is it about God? We're going to see that. We're going to see a lot of other things as well. Um, but turn with me, please to John 2. We're going to be in 13 to 22. John 2, 13. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Lord Jesus Christ, this is you John is writing about. This is you who turned over the tables in your father's house. This is you who was filled with zeal for your father's house. This is you who predicted that you were gonna die and rise again. We love you. We thank you. Please, I beg of this often, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to you, that our worship would be about you, that when we gather here, you would be among us, that we would never become a, about us. <laughs> we would never become about uh, what we can do, about our building, about our programs, but we would be about you, about one another, and about the mission you've given us, and all stemming from you in us. We love you. Amen. So you see here, we, we've gone through some before. Uh, this is right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Last time we looked at him turning water into wine. Uh, our conclusion was invite Jesus to your parties. But he turned water into wine. Uh, there's probably some time between that event and this event. We don't know how much time, but there's some time. Uh, and it says it's the Passover. Now, John does this in his book. He marks time with feasts often. And the Passover was the biggest for the Jews. The Passover is when they remembered leaving Egypt. Remember when God killed every firstborn of the Egyptians? But if you, if you killed a lamb, the Passover lamb, and you put the blood over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. That's why it's called Passover. And so they remember this every year. And again, that's a picture of Jesus to come, the Passover lamb. But they remember this. So Jesus went up. He was a good Jew. Remember that. He was a good Jew, and he went up to Jerusalem. That's what people would do. And you go up because it's on a hill. Everybody goes up to Jerusalem. So he goes up to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and that's where he is. Um, in verse 14, he enters the temple. And in the temple, he finds animals, uh, money changers, because in the temple is where you would do your sacrifices. You would come for the Passover, and that was when you would go. You would go to the temple. You would offer your sacrifice. And we talked about that earlier when we looked at John 1.29. We looked at the sin sacrifice. But there were many sacrifices. Some required pigeons, some other things. So they would do their sacrifices. And in this time, because a lot would travel there, this is when they would do their temple tax. You know, it was, it was their tithe. So they would go and they would give their temple tax at this time. Thousands of people would be coming to Jerusalem in this time. So picture the scene, you know, it's helpful to picture this. Many people had traveled. And if you're traveling and you're going to sacrifice and you're going to pay the temple tax, you're probably not gonna bring the animal a long way with you. It might not be unblemished by the time you get there. And so it wasn't a bad thing that they were going there and they would buy their sacrifice there. It was easier and it was okay. But they were doing it inside the temple. Um, we have a, a picture of the temple. Yeah, so this is roughly what it would look like. Uh, the, the inner part is where the Jews would go. So the Jews could go inside there and that's where they would do their worship. But Gentiles, most of us here, would not be allowed in that inner part. So they would go in the outer part. And that was called the court of the Gentiles. And so that would be filled up, filled up with what the Bible calls God-fearers, meaning they worshiped Yahweh, they worshiped the true God, but they weren't Jews by birth. And so they were allowed to go in and worship, but they weren't allowed into that area. Um, the other thing is they were paying this temple tax that I said. People came from all over the world, the known world, to do this, to come here. The temple tax had to be paid in a certain kind of coin. You know, it was considered more holy or more pure or whatever it is. So they had to use that coin. So they would come with their money and they would exchange their money for the coin they needed to pay the tax. And they would come in here and pay the tax. These are the things they needed to do to be good worshipers. And so it was okay that they had to do that. The problem was where they did it. 
So go to the other one if you would. Oh, that's cool. Um, it appears as, as though they were probably in the, go back to the big one. That one. This, the court of the Gentiles is probably where they were doing all this money changing and selling of the animals. So that area would be full of animals. So picture that. But the, the Gentiles were not allowed to worship in the inner part. That's where they worshiped. Can you imagine coming here on Sunday to worship? And we got like a bunch of sheep over here, and a bunch of doves, you know, and, and money changers over here. And you're trying to worship with all this going on. So that was the problem. It wasn't what they were doing. It was where they were doing it. They used to do it, you know, outside the city a little ways. That was okay. The problem is where they were doing it. And you see what Jesus does. Jesus gets kind of fired up. Um, he sits down and he, he makes a whip. It says here, if you look, um, that he makes a whip of cords. Um, what verse is that? Anyway, 10, uh, 14. In the temple, they were selling pigeons, money sitting there, 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So he goes in and he... He makes a whip. I don't know how long it would take, at least a few minutes. You know, did he go buy the cords? I don't know. Did he have them in his pouch? But he, he makes a whip and then he goes through cracking the whip, turning over tables and, and driving the animals out. Now, it would not have been a quick thing. You know, at least in my mind, whenever I thought about this, I thought of a small area, to be honest. I thought of a room maybe like this, where he comes in and before people know what he's doing, he's done it. This would have taken a little while. So he's walking through, he's cracking the whip, he's, and nobody stops him. Isn't that weird? I think that's weird. Because there are temple guards in this area. Why didn't they stop him? There was something about Jesus. And we'll see it later, because they ask him, by what authority did you do this? There's some air of authority in him. He's allowed to do it. They're not sure. A lot of people aren't sure. And so the guards even, they're not sure. You remember when they came to arrest him? In, in the, uh, the garden, he had been praying and they come up and they said, we're looking for, for Jesus. He said, I'm he. And they fall back and they get on their knees. The people that were coming to arrest him, there's something about Jesus. So he does this and they're holding back and they're kind of letting him do it. And it takes him some time, the way I picture it, to get this done. Uh, you know, this is kind of, a, kind of a side note, but I like to get a picture personally. I picture Jesus as a strong man. I, you know, we were in Italy, we were looking at, this was actually in Vienna. There was a, a statue or whatever of Jesus on the cross and he was skin and bone. And now I know he was whipped. He was beaten when he was on the cross. Um, but I don't think Jesus was skin and bone. What, what was his job? He was a carpenter, which in that time was a user of stone, a builder with stone. They didn't build with wood. They built with stone. He was a construction worker. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a pastor. He was a construction worker. I think he was a strong guy. I think, so, I mean, just picture that though, of him going through with some strength. When he threw the table, it probably went. You know, he, he could maybe be physically intimidating going in there. And part of the reason I think that is Jesus shows meekness at the end. People are, are beating him and what, he shows meekness. Meekness is no good if you don't have strength. Jesus is strong, so he's going, he's getting it done and he's chasing them out and he's getting fired up. And look what, he, look what happens. He overturns the tables. Verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He calls it his father's house. 
You know, maybe it was that, that people were coming into arrest and they heard him say that and they backed off. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There's several things going on here. Remember, as we read John, there's the context of what's happening. Jesus is in there. This is happening. There's, there's value there we're going to look at. There's also, this is 50 to 60 years after the events that John is writing this. John is choosing his words very, very carefully. Why does John include what he does? Why does John include, Jesus didn't say zeal for your house will consume me. That's written in Psalm. We're going to look at that. But the, the disciples remembered that sometime later, probably after his death and resurrection, they remembered that event. Somebody was reading in Psalm and they bring it to the others. They're like, hey, check it out. I remember, yep, yep. Why does Jesus include this stuff? There's something very, very valuable about why he is putting it in there. And part of it is looking at the Old Testament because it refers to the Old Testament. The Old Testament all points to Jesus. It's all a shadow of Jesus. Even the temple was a shadow that prepared for Jesus. Often people would search the Old Testament scriptures when they, were, they saw Jesus, they heard about Jesus, then they, they searched the Old Testament scriptures. The Bereans did it in Acts. And they go, it's true, he fulfills it. The sacrificial system all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to him as the perfect sacrifice. And so this event is an event, but there's also another message John is getting across here that's gonna come throughout the rest of the book. And the message is that Jesus is something new and he's replacing the old. Now this isn't replacement theology. This isn't that, that the Jews are gone and now it's just the church. But this is that the Mosaic law is done with. There is a new covenant coming with Jesus. Jesus comes with the new covenant, which replaces the old covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant. We're not going to get into all this. You can go home and research it. He didn't replace the Abrahamic covenant, but he did fulfill it, and he fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, which replaces it with the new. He had the authority to do that. He had the authority. And as you remember when he's writing, he's surely writing this after the temple had been destroyed. So his readers are thinking about this. The temple's gone. The place where they go to meet with God is gone. Well, Jesus had the authority to do away with it. And that's some of the message that we see going on here. So, but look with me, Psalm 69.9. So if you want to turn there, if not, it's up front. Psalm 69.9 is what this verse quotes. This is David. And he writes, for zeal for your house has consumed me. That's awkward. <laughs> Let's just take a moment. That was a test, actually. Take a moment, silence your cell phones. <laughs> that was my mom. <laughs> uh, Psalm 69, 9, forgive me. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> for zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal, we know the word zealous or zealot, fired up, hot. That word has a, the idea of being hot. I am hot for your house. Zeal for your house that is your presence, has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David is writing about suffering for God's sake. The second part of that, because he is filled with the zeal for God's house, which imagine that, if we're zealous, our mission is to expand the kingdom. If we're zealous for that, guess what? The reproach of God is gonna fall on you and me. We're gonna feel it, we're gonna get it. That's the idea here. Uh, the reproach and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
They remember this. And this is what Jesus is showing. Jesus is fired up. He's zealous for his, God, his father, for God the father, for his house. And he comes in and he sees what's going on and he's so hot about it, he's got to deal with it. And they remember later, they remember later, this is, this is what Jesus did. Now, picture, uh, this is in your notes, I think. You know, Jesus' zeal for the father's house got him killed for nothing that he deserved. Because of this, this is actually brought up when he's on trial. They bring this event up. But this got him killed. This and other things, of course, got him killed. And he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. But I want you to picture this with me. How often do we see Jesus get mad? Not a lot. Not a lot. But emotions. Think of your own life or those in your family. When do you see their heart? When they get emotional. And emotion can be anger, can be uh, sadness can be compassion, but when somebody's emotion comes out, when your emotion comes out, I get to see a glimpse of your heart. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? But your emotions, a lot of times, you hear people say that, you know, I can't control my emotions. Maybe not, but then you need to work on your heart so your emotions end up being correct. But your emotions reveal your heart. Jesus gets fired up here. You know, we see his emotion of sadness. He's looking over Jerusalem later. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I weep for you. You're like sheep without a shepherd and he weeps for lost people. But then when his father, when his father's house is, is being uh, basically thrown out, when, when all this is happening, that's when he gets fired up. He cares about his God's name, his father's name, and he gets fired up. There's value here. Here's the value in that we get to know Jesus. My pastor's heart is I desire all of you to grow in him. That's why we talk about devotions. That's why we have these devotions on the back so that you will pursue God, you'll get to know him so that you will experience the, the peace and the joy that come from him. That's my heart. My heart is to see this city changed and our country changed and the world changed because we're going out on mission. But there's no value, to be honest, in me telling you, go make disciples, right? Because then we just go do. But when it stems from love, when it stems from that, then it's valuable. Here's just a glimpse of what goes through my mind. So the best thing I can do for you is help you get to know Jesus. Not tell you what to do, although we need to do that. The best thing I can do for you is help you get to know Jesus. Because how do you fall in love with somebody? You spend time with them. You get to know them. And so I want to help you get to know Jesus. That's why this series, this first one in John, is the real Jesus. We get to know the real Jesus. And as you gaze upon him, as you behold your God, hopefully, hopefully you will fall in love with him. And that's been my prayer leading up to this, is that your heart would open, that you would soften, that you would allow yourself to be stirred, maybe even emotional. It's okay, men. It's okay to be emotional. Let the Holy Spirit move you. As you gaze upon Jesus, everything will change. But anyway, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Rather than arresting him, they ask him what authority he has. So here's, I picture the scene. He's just done a lot of work and he's probably panting heavily and he's sitting there and here they come up, maybe tentatively. They said, what authority do you have? What, show us a sign. Because they're waiting for the Messiah. Maybe it's him. Show us a sign. And Jesus says something that they did not get. 
at all. And he does this throughout John. He, he says something with another meaning that the, he'll tell the disciples later or the disciples will understand later. Um, and that's what he does here. He says, destroy this temple, destroy this house, and in three days I'll rise it up. And look at their response. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So they're thinking the physical. They're thinking this temple. Now the temple, um, you can read this. This is a, a fun study. How many temples were there? There was the first temple that Solomon built. That was amazing. That temple was destroyed. Uh, and then the remnant came back from, from Babylon. They came back to rebuild the temple. But the temple, so they rebuilt it and then they left it half built for 15 to 20 years. Then they came back and they finished it and it was okay. But when they finished it, the people that had seen the old one just wept. <laughs> they said, if you would have seen the old one, you would know this, this ain't nothing. And so they wept. Well, Herod, who was king, he had spent 46 years taking that one and making it grand again, bringing in the gold, bringing all that stuff. And he, he brought it up. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he was Caesar's guy and the better he made that temple, the more people would come to see it, the more money would come into Jerusalem, the more taxes were paid, the more he could give back to Caesar. So that's kind of the way that goes. For the Jews, though, it's great for them. Their temple is now grand again. And it had taken 46 years in addition to the original years to build it, 46 more for Herod to make it great. And they're thinking, you're going to destroy this? We're going to destroy it. He said, you destroy it. He said, I'll raise it up in three days. They're confused. But then John does what he often does, is he gives us a, a little side note to help us understand. And he does this in 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Think about that for just a minute. What did he just call Jesus' body? A temple. Throughout the entire scripture, how many temples are there at a time? One. There's one temple at a time. And what is the significance of the temple? We've talked about this some before. The temple is the place that was God's presence among his people on earth. That is where God would rest. The Ark of the Covenant was there. That's where God would be. And it was his direct presence among his people. And so first it was the Ark in a tent. And that's where they would meet. Then they built the temple. They brought the Ark into the temple. There was always only one. So if Jesus' body is a temple... What's up with the old temple? That's where there's, there's something deeper going on here. Jesus is finishing what had planned with the Mosaic law and he's starting something new. Evidence is that in AD 70, this temple was destroyed and it wasn't rebuilt. But Jesus' body later was. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the sign of his authority and his identity. The death and resurrection, that was the sign. He said he would give them a sign. They did destroy his body. They did kill him. And three days later, he did raise it up again. He proved his authority to do those things. His authority not just to drive them out, his authority to bring in the new covenant. He had that authority and he did it. Romans 1, 1b through 4, kind of examines the same idea. Let me read that for you. It's, it's up front. It says, Paul basically introduces himself and he says, I have been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament, okay? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul uses this. Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, uses his death and resurrection of proof of who he is. He was declared to be the son of God. He was the son of God in power and in identity, but it was declared, meaning it was made known. It was made clear by his death and then his resurrection made it clear. Jesus is Lord. Paul writes this elsewhere. If Jesus didn't die and raise, our, our religion is worthless. Our, our life is worthless. It is all based on Jesus' resurrection on the cross, which took care of your sins, which got rid of the sacrificial system, and now we can be new in this new covenant. That's what Jesus was predicting. This kind of struck me that, you know, Sunday mornings I go and I spend some time going back over. Um, but Jesus predicts his death about three years before it happens. And he knows exactly how it's going to happen. He's going to die and he's going to be raised again in three days. The Old Testament, Psalm 53 specifically, or I'm sorry, um, Isaiah 53 specifically, really describes his death beautifully, almost perfectly. God knew what he was going to do when he created the world. God knew Jesus, who we've already seen is the one who created the beginning. Jesus knew what you were going to be. He knew your sin. He knew the darkness of your heart and mine. He knew what was going to happen when he created us. He knew what he was going to do about it, and he was willing to do it. Jesus, as a man now, 30 years old-ish, knew what he was going to do, and he was okay with it. Again, do you see the love he's got for you and for me? He's predicting it before. He knew what he was going to do. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Even the disciples at that time didn't get it. Look on. 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember, what is the main purpose of the book of John? That we would believe, and in believing we would have life. That's John's goal. Again, he tells a story of something Jesus does amazing, and the result is that people believe. He includes this over and over through the book. You can't miss it. They believe in who he is, his identity, and his authority. And this points to Jesus. Again, the typology of the temple, the typology of the Old Testament, it points to Jesus. The Passover lamb points to Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. I, w I want us to answer, though, what is significant about this today? The first one is, do you know Jesus a little better? You've seen him get emotional. You've seen what he cares about. He cares about his father. He cares about worship of his father. That temple is where they would go to worship. You know, God fears those who really love God, they would go and they would give their sacrifice. And that's a big deal, coming to worship. Jesus was fired up, I think, for God, but also for those worshipers. You're bugging in on worship, so we get to know him a little bit. Do you know him better? Do you love him more? You see what he did for you? But then there's, there's I think, another point. There's another point, and it's what I started out with, is talking about worship. Jesus gets ticked off because their worship is messed up. Because they're not coming and they're not worshiping accurately. They start using the place of worship wrongly. They use it for gain. They use it for personal gain, financial gain. They're using it incorrectly. And if Jesus, his body was the temple, the old temple was done away with, and Jesus 
because he was God incarnate, he became God's presence on earth. The old one was done. Now Jesus is direct God's presence. Then, this is in your notes, the temple is no longer needed because Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection brought in the new covenant and he is the temple. No more sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. But what happened to Jesus after he died and rose again and hung out for a little bit? He ascended. So he physically was no longer present on this earth among his people. So what's the temple now? It's not a trick question. (laughs) What's the temple? You and me. Alex is pointing to himself back there. We are the temple. Meaning everything that the old temple was, see, this gives me chills. Everything that the old temple was, God's direct presence on earth is what you and I are. Whenever the New Testament talks about you are God's temple, you are the temple of God, you know, you are his body. Most of the time he's saying you all, it's plural, y'all. So yes, me, Derek Carpenter, I am the temple of God. Jesus lives in me. But even more so, we collectively, the church, we are the temple. That's why gathering is so important. That's why going on mission together is so important. That's why simply loving one another is so important. People will get to know God because they will come to us and see us. You are the temple. What did Jesus do when the temple was used incorrectly? He got emotional. (laughs) How is the temple being used now? So often the church is used incorrectly. So often it's used for selfish gain. Many pastors are very guilty of that. We get about our buildings. (laughs) We get about all these other things. How is our worship, church? Because we are the temple. We are the presence. And Jesus cared. When David wrote this, thousands, a thousand years before Jesus came, David wrote, zeal for your house will consume me. God was fired up about his, his presence. A thousand years later, Jesus comes, shows it. You think it's changed now? You think zeal for God's house doesn't still consume him? It does. Meaning he gets emotional about what we're doing right now. <laughs> he cares about what we're doing right now. What are we bringing? What are we bringing? How is our heart? Where are we here? This is in your notes. The current temple where God dwells mightily among his people is the church. Is the church. I often wonder what Jesus would say if he walked into our churches. What would he say when he saw our worship? But what is the most valuable thing in our worship? It's our heart. It's not what we do here. This is why a church can last for a long time without God being there. They can get wrapped up in the building, the money going on. They can get wrapped up in the programs and those things and, they, and not experience Jesus. He cares about your heart, your heart. And then when your heart of worship is accurate, is online, then when you come in here, then the Holy Spirit's gonna show up with us as we go to God collectively together. And then as we go in mission, we're gonna see the Holy Spirit work. Why, why? Is it, I think it's less than 5% of American churches actually do evangelism. Less than 5% because they've stopped worshiping. They've, they've become about their programs. And the danger, I started this, the danger of a church plant of us is getting wrapped it up in what we do here. There's the danger. And losing the focus on the cross, on Jesus, he died for us. And then what that happens in us and through us. So here's, here's the application. I wrote it. I, half of this is on your notes. How is our worship? Do we use the church or God for what we can get? Is worship about us, 
our glory, our kingdom? Or is our worship truly about the Father who sent his Son to take our sins? And this struck me this morning. Are we church consumers or are we worshipers? Do we come for what we can get or do we come to worship? And here's how you know. So here's where you can tune back in. Here's how you know. And I, I'm convinced of this. Look at, your, look at what you sacrifice. What do you sacrifice for the kingdom? What do you sacrifice? This struck me this week when I was reading through Acts. They sacrificed it all. Paul sacrificed it all. They all sacrificed it all. What have you sacrificed? What do you sacrifice? And what do we have to sacrifice for him? We have our time. We have our talents. And we have our treasure. How are you doing? Are you sacrificing? In the Old Testament, in the, you know, the old law, they brought sacrifices, stuff. They brought those. But now we, we still sacrifice. But it's not to gain. It's not to be right. We are right. But it's a worship thing. We bring our time, our talents, and our treasure. But there's one other thing to that. Because if, you, if you're good at all those, you could just be religious. <laughs> you could just be a really good legalist, bringing your time, your talents, and your treasure. The next is, how's your heart with that? Do you bring those sacrifices with a heart of joy? Do you rejoice in what God is doing for his kingdom outside of you? I was reading in Acts this week, and, and Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he shares with all the church, the elders and the leaders there, he shares with them what God is doing among the Gentiles, and they rejoiced. They cared about what was happening elsewhere. That struck me a little bit. A lot of times, how much do I really rejoice about what God is doing elsewhere? I want God to do something here, which is great, but can't we rejoice for what God is doing? So where is your heart? How's your time, your talents, and your treasure? And where's your heart in it? Don't just go out, you know, as we looked at giving before, we looked at giving, you don't just give out of compulsion. You give because you think about it and you give with a free heart. And that's your money, that's your time, and that's your talents. So that's what we can check to line up. How is our worship? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let me pray. We're going we're gonna to sing a little more. Father in heaven, <laughs> thank you for wanting to be present with us. Um, if I were you, I wouldn't want to be with me. Um, but you do, and that's so humbling. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for proving, Jesus, thank you for proving your identity and your authority by your resurrection. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to wonder about who you are. You proved it and you gave us life. We thank you. And now we bring our sacrifices. Not to earn anything, because Jesus, you earned it all for us. You were the perfect sacrifice. You are, we are accepted before you. We thank you for that. But now we want to worship you. As we will for the rest of eternity, we want to worship you. Be glorified. Amen.